Okay, welcome back to Musar for Sar Shalom Women. Uh, here on a beautiful Tuesday afternoon, the weather is not quite as hot today, and so we're really enjoying a little break in the Texas summer heat. Um, tag in when you get online so I'll know that you're there. It always makes me feel a little bit more comfortable knowing that I'm not talking to an empty room. Uh, I hope your fast of Tammuz was not too painful. And as we begin these three weeks, I want to repeat some of Rabbi's comments from this drosh this last Saturday. And uh, he's, first of all, he started out by saying that we must have commitment to this, uh, to this whole Torah movement, to this whole walk of life, and that there should be no plan B, no other thing that we're like, if this doesn't work out, we'll go do that. There is no plan B. He, he encouraged us to be like Rocky, if you've ever seen the Rocky movie, to stick with it. And I actually went home over the weekend and watched uh, the Rocky movie just to kind of get in that mindset. You know, the last temple was destroyed because of baseless hate, and that began with Lashon Hara. And so he also cautioned us again against Lashon Hara, and he reminded us of the power of our words, of, of words, but not our words necessarily, but rather the power of the words of Hashem. And he challenged us to speak into existence the words of Hashem. And then he gave us a, a very tall challenge, uh, maybe for some of us, that during these three weeks that we are in, to commit every single day to the times of prayer, to Shakrit, to Minka, and either to Erev, uh, or uh, Ma'ariv, or to the bedtime Shema. And uh, I, I know most of you are familiar, but Shakrit can be done as, uh, right at sunrise. Uh, Minka can be done anytime before sunset, and then you can do Ma'arif right after, or you can do the bedtime Shema before you go to bed. So I encourage you to do that. Um, I've actually set up someone to hold me accountable, a friend, and I've told her to text me every few days and keep keep asking me, are you doing it? He also encouraged us not to get so focused on the halakha on the trivial things that we can do or can't do during these three weeks and be more focused on the spirit of what these three weeks are all about. And he also reminded us, as we've learned in our current book study, that trials and tears will bring Teshuva. So we are in a week, uh, three weeks of actually uh, a time of mourning. And so this time of trials and tears will bring Teshuva. And finally, he challenged or asked us to be specific in our prayers for three things, among the other things that we pray for. And the first one was the city of Saginaw, um, and that the holy sparks would be gathered up from our city in which Sar Shalom is located. If you're in a different city, you might pray for the city of Saginaw as well as your own city. The second thing he asked us to be in very strong prayer for is the completion of the mikvah. This is going to be a great event uh, in the world as well as in our city and in the congregation of Sar Shalom. So we pray that this will be uh, moved along and completed very soon. And finally, he asked us to pray for the coming of Mashiach, not just 
like we do normally in a very casual way, but in a very intense, longing way. And of course, we know that when Mashiach comes, he will rebuild the temple for us. Well, I am so glad that you have stuck it out and stuck out this study that we're going through this summer. Excuse me, I'm still dealing with the last of this little cold that Rachel and I have been sharing this week. Um, We will finish this book for uh, those that may be just joining today for the first time. We're we're going through this summer in Sha'arei Teshuvah, and we will finish by the end of August. So when the temperature begins to change in September, we will have finished this long, hard, hot summer of study. Uh, Then uh, early September, uh, the days of Elul will begin. And those are great and wonderful days, days of Teshuva, days when they say that the king is in the field. And so in anticipation of that, I've been reviewing a number of different books looking at several different ones and this week I just want to give you a little sneak preview I have finally settled on a book that was recommended to me by another Sar Shalom member Bill Wilson and I think it's going to be a perfect transition from the book we're studying now on Teshuvah and this book is much shorter the chapters are much simpler and easier to read And yet, it's still a book that was based on an ancient Musar text. So, I'm going to show you the book, and I don't want you to get all concerned up over the title. Um, It's called The Kabbalah of Forgiveness. Uh, It is based on the work of uh, Rabbi Cordovero from the 1500s, I believe in Spain. And it's commented on in our day by an author called Henry Abrahamson. And although it has the word Kabbalah in the title, I have read through most of it, almost all of it. And it's an excellent book. This book uses the 13 traits of mercy of of Hashem found in Exodus 34 to teach us how to forgive others. Um, And there's not a lot of heavy, what you might think of as Kabbalah in it. So don't be concerned about the title. Uh, It's based on only the first chapter of Rabbi Cordovero's text called Date Palm of Devorah. You may have heard of that text. It's an ancient Musar text. But this book is based only on the first chapter. Uh, And this book is also available on Kindle. So if you like to use Kindle, I think it was $3 and something on Kindle. So if you prefer it that way or you can't quite afford the the paperback book, then I encourage you to get it that way. And we're going to work on that book from Elul, first of Elul, through Yom Kippur. So it'll be a great uh, transition from our summer study into Yom Kippur. And then we'll probably take a a break during the fall holy days while we enjoy Sukkot and a few other things. And then we'll get back together. Okay, so today we have a lot to cover. And I want to jump right in and maybe get through this, hopefully before the hour is up. Last week we studied level 5 finished level five, and those were prohibitions that involved specific actions. And amongst others, we looked at eating the Orla. We had a long discussion on that. We talked about stealing even uh, your own item back. You're prohibited. We talked about the prohibition of reading omens and divining, perverting weights and justice, 
uh, measures acting as a creditor to your uh, to your fellow that you lend money to or giving him interest mixing animals of different species and we talked about the mule a bit relations outside of marriage eating animals not kosher slaughtered accepting a bribe even a bribe of words and this was specifically for a judge working on a yom tov except for preparing food for that yom tov we talked about men wearing women's garments or even uh, doing women's hygiene things like painting the nails or whatever allowing hazards in your home that might harm someone else, erasing the name of Hashem, and adopting the practices of idolatrous nations. So uh, we've been going through a lot of heavy-duty stuff, but we always remember there is no sin for which forgiveness is not possible. We study the mitzvot. We examine ourselves against those mitzvot. We see our shortcomings, but we have the answer. The answer is Teshuvah. Today, we're going to cover several levels, uh, and hopefully we'll make it through all of them. We're going to cover levels 6 through 9. Then next week, we're going to cover and finish level 10, and then we'll be only a few days away or a week or so away from the completion of the three weeks. So let's look at level 6. We're going to be starting on page 391 in our textbook. This level covers the sins punishable by death at the hands of heaven. Now, punishment by the death by the hands of heaven affects only the sinner himself. In our next level that we'll look at in a minute, we're going to look at karet, karat, which affects not only the sinner, but possibly his uh, descendants. Because of his death at the hands of heaven generally is considered less severe than karat. However, the sages don't see it that way necessarily. In Pesachim 32b and Yahut Shimoni, uh, in a comment on Hosea 14.12, they say, in one matter and in one respect, the penalty of death at the hands of heaven is more severe than the penalty of karat with regard to one who is liable to death at the hands of heaven. Um, for death surrounds him and virtually enters through his windows, they say. The animals he owns dies, perhaps. His cow grazes in the meadow and suddenly dies. His chicken picks through the garbage and suddenly dies. Death simply attaches itself to him until it destroys him. Now, Corette, that we'll look at in a minute, may also cause a person to die but also his children. Um, but it doesn't have that pervasive element of death surrounding him. So the sages see that the death at the hands of heaven and Karat, which we'll look at in a minute, are both very serious and almost equal. Rabbi Yona goes on to give some examples of prohibitions that would be punishable by the hands of heaven. The first one is from the Mishnah Sanhedrin 83a, one who eats tavel. Now, what is tavel? Tavel is grain that has not yet been rendered acceptable through separation of the tithe, the terumot and the masot. Masarot, sorry. The mitzvah of separating tarumot and masarot from produce still does apply to produce that is grown in Eretz Israel, even today. The terumot is to go to the Levi every year and the masar to the poor in the third and the sixth years of the Shemitah cycle. Uh, and 
In the past, it was taken to Jerusalem and eaten there. In the absence of the temple, the Beit HaMikdash, the Teremot, and the Masarot are to still be separated, and they have come up with a procedure for this that has been developed for those that need to do that in these days. The next one that he mentions is in the Gemara and the Midrash in various places, and it's uh, based on a scripture from Shemot 2221. You may not cause pain to any widow or orphan. If you cause him pain, for he shall cry out to me, that's Hashem speaking, I will surely hear his outcry. My wrath shall blaze and I shall kill you by the sword, or as we're saying here, at the hands of heaven. The sages say that this applies whether the orphan or widow actually cries out or not. Uh, the next one is in Job twenty-two twenty-three. Do not rob the destitute because he is destitute, for Hashem will fight their fight and rob the soul of those who rob them. Again, death at the hands of heaven. Hashem punishes the robber by taking away his life. And we discussed this a little bit uh, in level three. The next one is on page 396, and it is, uh, Rabbi will, uh, Yona will discuss Lashon Hara in more detail later uh, in our next level. But here he discusses one particular form of Lashon Hara, and that is defam defamation, which is punishable by death at the hands of heaven. Bamidbar 1437. We just had this a couple of weeks ago in our Aliyahs. The people who spread the evil report about the land died in a plague before Hashem. Now we've talked about Valch Kal Vechomer, which is a, uh, when you talk about something, if something lesser is true, then how much more is something uh, heavier true? And so he's saying here, if defamation against an inanimate object, that is the land, is uh, subject to punishment at the hands of heaven, how much more is defamation of a human or a person punishable? Then Rabbi Yona goes on to discuss an even more specific type of defamation, and that is of the Motsi Shim Ra. Uh, this comes from Devarim 22:13 through 21. This is when a newly married man uh, who defames his uh, bride by claiming in a bait dean that she had relations with another man during their period of engagement or erosine. His wife, if found guilty, could be subject to the death penalty. If, on the other hand, the charge is proven to be false, the husband is subject to malkut, lashes, and a money fine. In the Devering passage, it goes on to say, And they shall find him one hundred silver, and give to give that to the father of the girl, for he has issued a slander. Now the sages go on and say that one should give up his life rather than embarrass his fellow in public. We'll talk about that more later. But even though the woman, if found guilty, is in danger of death, it is the husband's crime of embarrassing his wife publicly that causes him to be subject to punishment at the hands of heaven. So very serious crime for him to falsely accuse his bride of, of this and cause her public uh, embarrassment. 
the sages go on to talk about defamation in Yerushalayim, Bava, Bava, 8, 7. If one spreads a damaging rumor, not only about a person, but about a whole family, a whole name of a family in general, he can never be granted full atonement. Why is that? Because he must seek forgiveness from every single person he has harmed, not only the current living family members, but it, because it's against a family, then against all of the descendants. And of course, that would be impossible. Uh, the next one that we look at is on page 398. Uh, and this is um, Rabbi Yona brings up, Another one that is punishable by the death at the hands of heaven. And that is one uh, that I'll quote here. Amuses himself with young girls. Or as he goes on to say, marries a young girl who is not even old enough to have children. It's considered a wasting of his seed. And they connect this to the stories you may remember of Ur and Onan from Bereshit 38. And these, if you remember, Judah went off to... Uh, and married another woman, and he had children, and then uh, he was, uh, Tamar was promised, and then the son died, and then he promised his next two sons, and they both wasted their seed rather than uh, have relations with Tamar, and Hashem, it says, caused them to die. Page 399 is Hilul Hashem. We've talked about this before. Hilul Hashem is desecrating the name of Hashem. But this one uh, the, on page 399 is specifically by a Torah scholar who does not conduct himself properly and modestly um, is also liable to death at the hands of heaven, heaven because he distances the people's love of Torah, causing them to look down upon it because of his actions. And the sages concur in Yoma 86a, when a person learns Torah and engages in Torah study and his manner is pleasant and his business dealings are conducted with grace, people will say good things about the Torah. But if he doesn't, they will say bad things about the Torah. And they reference Ezekiel 36.20. Now, whether you consider yourself a Torah scholar or not, I do think that the spirit of the law here is that how we conduct ourselves will affect how other people see the Torah because we claim to live a Torah life. Uh, the next one is uh, one who has a Beit Midrash or an opportunity for studying Torah in his city and does not go there to study. <clears throat> Anyone who challenges his Torah teacher's academy and one who renders a halakhic decision in the presence of his Torah teacher. We've talked about a few of these before and you can read more about them on page 401 and 402. We move on to page 403 and uh, the next one is depriving the poor of tithes and other gifts to which they are entitled. The sages state in Mishnah a vote 5a, pestilence, which would be a plague, comes to the world on account of the death penalties prescribed them by the Torah that are not under the jurisdiction of a Beit Din on account of violations related to what? Fruits of the Shemitah, such as withholding these from the poor. So if they're due, the, the tithe that's due the poor and it's not given to the poor, then this would be punishable by death at the hands of heaven. You can read a lot more detail about this on page 403 and 404, but he concludes with a warning. 
that, uh, and we've talked about this previously, making a vow to charity and not fulfilling it is depriving the poor of what we have vowed to give him. So be cautious about that. The last one that he mentions in level six is the one who withholds his hand from charity to his destitute brother, ignoring the needs of that he has of his own flesh and blood. And this is similar to individuals uh, uh, who steal, who's called stealing from the poor. Because he is obligated to give to the needy and fails to do so, to do so it is considered stealing from the poor. Okay, so that was level six. Level seven is karat. And this we read in English in the Torah as being cut off. And this level covers prohibitions that are subject to the punishment of karat, which is also a type of death. And one, one who transgresses these inadvertently has to bring a katat offering according to the Torah. But karat also means that both the sinner and his offspring are cut off from life and die prematurely. Um, and this might include such things as having relationship uh, relations with a close relative. Vaikra 2020 says, They shall bear their sin and they shall die childless. Uh, Rabbi Yonah teaches that there are two levels of karat. One, uh, for example, one who has relations with a close relative, this is the standard type of karat, and it is punishable. Uh, this is also includes one who eats chametz on Pesach and works on Yom Kippur. The second one <clears throat> is even more severe, and that is though being cut off from life in this world and life in the world to come. Uh, this includes those who practice idolatry and who degrade the Torah and those that are considered generally enemies of Hashem. Now, next week, when we go into level 10, we're going to, the whole level 10 is about this very second type of Karat. So he asks the question, or we, we might ask the question, does this mean that if we see uh, those that we think are liable to Karat living to a very old age, that Hashem has not followed followed through with his word, with his punishment. And Rabbi Yonah tells us to be very careful about this. Hashem may grant an extension on this, uh, even for two or three generations, for several reasons. It may be that the person has done something meritorious in his life. You know, perhaps he's he has done a sin punishable by Karet, but he's also done something meritorious in his life. And Hashem, rather than uh, saving his reward, as we would prefer, for the Alam Haba, he's going to reward him now in this life rather than in the world to come. In Devarim 7.10, it says, To those who despise him, he repays in their lifetime for whatever good they may have done so as to eliminate them. He will not delay to repay one who despises him, but will repay him uh, in his lifetime. And therefore, what appears to us, maybe a sinner is being successful, may be really just a precursor to his downfall. In the Shabbat Psalm that uh, some of us read on Friday nights, it says, A boorish man cannot know, nor can a fool understand, when the wicked flourish like grass and the evil doers blossom, it is that they will be destroyed for eternity. Okay. <clears throat> on page 410, 
uh, he talks again about why punishment might be delayed. Uh, in Kohelet Rabbah 732, it says, For three reasons the Holy One is slow to anger with the wicked. Perhaps they will repent. Uh, and we know that Teshuvah is the answer. Two, perhaps they have performed mitzvah for which Hashem wished to re- re- wishes to reward them now. And three, perhaps children will descend from this evil person. Uh, for righteous children will descend from this evil person. And we have the example of wicked King Ahaz and the righteous King Hezkiahu who came from him. So, uh, he was able, he delayed the punishment for King Ahaz so that a King Heziahu could be born. Based on Devarim 135 and Bamidbar 1435, regarding the generation that died in the wilderness, Karet, early death, is considered by the sages as dying before the age of 50, while death at the hands of heaven that we just covered entails dying before the age of 60. But again, he cautions us that not everyone who dies at the age of 50 or even before 60 should be assumed to have committed a sin punishable or the hands of heaven. And you can read more about how they determine all of that on pages 413 and 414. Uh, He goes on to discuss the effect of Karat on future generations. Of those who are liable to this type of punishment, The one who causes his offspring to fall prey to evil and corruption will not only cause uh, uh, cause the offspring to die early, but they will become rebellious. So uh, a sinner has children that are sinners. um, And so he, he may be subject to an early death. His children may be subject to an early death as well as his children may become rebellious. And it is said that by the sages, that this is what can happen to the offspring of a child who was conceived during Nidah. Now, at this point, Rabbi does spend Rabbi Yona spends some time talking about Nidah, and it says a woman remains impure in her Nidah state, even if she has ceased to have her menstrual flow as required, as long as she has not immersed in that pool of natural water or the waters of a river or a spring. So this is an excellent reason to pray for our mikvah, to give to the mikvah fund, and do all you can to uh, help bring about that mikvah project very soon. Okay, on page 416, we're going to move on to level 8. Now, this section covers sins that would be punishable by by judicial execution. And the Torah also prescribes what they are and how it's to be carried out. And there are four basic methods, and we're going to talk about those. Um, And this responsibility for carrying out this type of punishment is delegated to a Beit Din, specifically a Sanhedrin Beit Din, comprised of at least 23 qualified judges. And this comes from uh, Mishnah Sanhedrin 2a. So the first type is stoning. And this would include one who cohabits with his father's wife or a daughter-in-law or another male, a practitioner of divination, one who desecrates the Shabbat, one who curses his father or mother, one who cohabits with a betrothed woman, not his own, an insider to idolatry, a sorcerer or a wayward or rebellious son, one who blasphemes the divine 
and one who worships idols. These would be subject to the punishment of stoning. The next one is burning. And this one includes one who cohabits with a woman and her daughter or with his wife's daughter, her son's daughter, her daughter's daughter, or with his mother-in-law, his mother-in-law's mother or his father-in-law's mother. So very close relatives. The next one is beheading. And this would include a murderer or the people of a subverted city. Now, what is a subverted city? A subverted city... And several cities may come to your mind here in the United States. Uh, is a city where all of the residents, and it specifically says of a Jewish city, in Eretz Israel, not the United States, are led astray. The entire city is led astray and worships idols. And that is called a subverted city. Sanhedrin 111b is where that is found. The next one and final one is strangulation. Uh, this would include one who strikes his father or mother or one who abducts a person uh, among the children of Israel. A sage who rebels against the word of the, of the great Sanhedrin. One who prophesies falsely in the name of, Sh of Shem or one who prophesies in the name of any false god. And one who cohabits with a married woman. So adultery. So these are the four types of... of uh, a, a judicial execution and of course today but, uh, these cannot be carried out because we don't have a functioning Sanhedrin uh, but Rabbi Yona cautions us that just because we don't have the Sanhedrin and these can't be carried out by the court does not mean that they will be completely overlooked um, Perhaps, he goes on to say, perhaps the sinner will die in a manner that is similar to the, uh, to the punishment. For example, he may fall from a roof or die in a fire or die by drowning. Uh, so, um, so it could be that it's almost at the hands of heaven since it cannot be at the hands of man any longer at this time. He also reminds us that an earthly court cannot suspend punishment if there is repentance because man cannot know the true heart of a, of a man. However, a heavenly court can accept sincere repentance and prevent the fates that we've discussed here. Again, this is why teshuva is so, so critical in our lives. Okay, uh, he also goes on to talk about a particular sin, though it is not punishable by the death penalty, is very similar in its severity. So it's interesting that this one came up this week because this is what is in our parsha this very week. And in fact, Rabbi was talking about it in his Aliyah. And that is the sin of cohabitation, not only with a woman, but an idolatrous woman. And the sages say, state that one who cohabits with an Aramean woman, zealous ones may kill him. Uh, comes from Sanhedrin 81b, and it's based on the story in our Parsha this week of Pincus, who pierced both uh, the man and the woman through with a spear. However, the sages were very strict with this and generally disproved of this kind of uh, handing out of justice was only applicable in the times of the great, great Sanhedrin. And since we don't have a great Sanhedrin, we cannot go out on our own and uh, carry out this punishment. 
He also points out, Rabbi Yonah does, that uh, generally when a person is punished by death, there has to be at least two witnesses. Two witnesses. But in the case of this particular one, and you may remember the story from Pincus, there was no uh, court hearing. There was no uh, witnesses brought, although there were probably witnesses around. Uh, and so what the justice is taken very quickly. And you can read more about this uh, on pages 421 and 422 or listen to Rabbi this week on his Aliyah. And again, Rabbi Yonah cautions us that although we cannot carry out this punishment today, uh, that does not prevent the hands of heaven from carrying out such a punishment. He uh, ends this level with a couple of similar ones. Uh, the sages state in Avo 589, the sword comes to the world on account of the following, delaying justice, perverting justice, and for those who render Torah rulings against true halakha. A second one is savage beasts can come to the world for vain oaths and desecration of the name of Hashem. Okay, now this next one is very interesting, and um, it's the ninth level of severity. This section covers uh, actions for which we must allow ourselves to be killed rather than transgress these things. The sages state in Sanhedrin 74a, if someone tells you, do this or you will be killed, uh, you should go ahead and allow yourself to be killed. But they start out by saying only in these certain circumstances, because based on Vaikra 18.5, it says, you shall observe my decrees and laws, which by which a man shall do them and live. And uh, so therefore, life above everything. But there are a few circumstances where uh, life is not as important as carrying these things out. And the first one is idol worship. So if someone says, bow down to this uh, idol or you will be killed, then be killed. And there are examples of that throughout scriptures in various stories. Illicit relations and murder. But they go on to say... If it's in public, or if it's during a time of religious persecution, uh, then, um, got my brain lost. The, uh, Vayikra 22.32 says, I should be sanctified among the children of Israel. So if these things happen, if anything happens during a time of religious persecution or in a public place, then for any mitzvah, we should allow ourselves to be killed because uh, Rashi goes on to say in Sanhedrin 74a, during times of religious persecution, one may not let the persecutors succeed in their campaign of terrorizing the Jews, for if they are successful, they will continue. And if even one submits in private, it becomes public and will strengthen the persecutor. Since the very continuity of Torah life is at stake, martyrdom is required for any mitzvah, even in a private setting. And this is a basic element of the obligation to sanctify Hashem's name. Um, this come, uh, comes from Sanhedrin 74a. So, um, if you have questions uh, specifically about anything relating that you think 
might relate to this, I would encourage you to speak to Rabbi or one of the uh, the Zakins. Okay, at the end of level nine, he talks to us, Rabbi Yonah, about things that he calls the dust of. So these things are not overtly wrong, but they have some kind of uh, connection to something of the same level. For example, the first one is called the dust of idol worship. So in Pesachim 25a, the sages say, one may be healed of a life-threatening illness with any substance uh, except for the wood of an Asherah pole. So if someone were to say to you, the only thing that's going to heal your illness is the wood of the Asherah pole, then we're prohibited from taking that. Uh, and this is why it's called the dust of idol worship, because it's not a, we're not exactly uh, told not to, to take this for medicine, but because it gives such an appearance of, of uh, perhaps someone would see that and attribute that to the Asherah rather than to Hashem. Uh, the next one is the dust of illicit relations. So um, this one's kind of amusing a little bit. If if one says that I am overcome by desire for this married woman, I must have her and I've now become ill and the only thing that will heal me is to have this woman, um, we are not to do that. The man is not to do this. So we can see how serious this is even from the safeguard of touching a woman that he is not even allowed to even at the even if he's at the point of death of desiring this woman, he cannot have her. Okay, the next one is the dust of murder. And the dust of murder is the act of humiliating another person. When a person is humiliated publicly and it says the blood drains from his face, uh, it is as if bloodshed occurred. And the sages state in Bava Metzia 58b, the agony of being humiliated is more bitter than death, and therefore one, one who humiliates another is considered in a sense to have committed murder. And they continue, a person should always cast himself into a fiery furnace in order not to shame his fellow publicly. So uh, your death is preferred over causing uh, a public humiliation to one of your fellows. And they use the story of Tamar to support this, who uh, was on her way to, to be burned. Uh, rather than publicly humiliate Yehuda, she was, rather, she was prepared to die and, until he came forth. And you can read more about that on pages 430 and 431. <coughs> okay, the last one that he talks about in this section is on page 432. And he concludes this section with a prohibition that is similar, and that is the commandment to observe Shabbat. The sages state in Yerushalami, Berakot 1.5, Shabbat is equivalent to all the mitzvot combined. And Rabbi, uh, our rabbi even talked about this today in his Aliyah, about how the effect of Shabbat can spread. And they state in Kulin 5a, one who worships idols or desecrates Shabbat publicly 
even if he keeps all the other mitzvot, is considered an apostate regarding the entire Torah. He has the same status as a person who disregards all the mitzvot. And the note on the bottom of page 432 states this, A person who worships idols denies Hashem's divinity. Similarly, one who desecrates Shabbat publicly denies the basic message of Shabbat, that Hashem created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And these are such central foundations of our faith that one who denies them is tantamount to one who disregards the entire Torah. So again, we see the very importance of keeping Shabbat. Okay, that was a quick run through levels six through nine. And so very quickly, we learned in level six, those are punishable by death at the hands of heaven, such as causing pain to a widow or uh, withholding your hand from charity. The seventh was punishable by karat or being cut off, which is also a type of death or an early death. This one can affect the sinner as well as his offspring, and they may die childless or the children become rebellious. And this one specifically has to do with having relations with a close relative. Um, the eighth level covered uh, sins by capital punishment. We looked at the four different types. And we talked, uh, it included in this category would be cohabiting with a close relative, striking your father or mother, prophesying falsely in the name of Hashem or even in the name of a false god. And then we talked about uh, the subverted city. We also learned that capital punishment can't be carried out today because we don't have the Sanhedrin, but that doesn't prevent the hands of heaven from carrying out those punishments. <clears throat> the ninth level is ones in which we should allow ourselves to be killed or die rather than transgress. And we looked at some of those are idol worship, illicit relations, and murder. And then he looked at several of those that were similarly related, the dust of, because they may not seem obviously wrong. And we talked about being healed through the wood of an Asherah pole, becoming ill for the desire of a particular married woman, uh, and claiming he must have the woman, humiliating another person publicly, and desecrating the Shabbat publicly. So, like I said, next week we will cover level 10, which whew, will be the last of this difficult, very difficult section. And that will cover uh, very in-depth the uh, sins that will cause a person not only to be cut off from this world, but the world to come. So, uh, if you have the book, you might want to read ahead and look at what some of what those are. Okay, so let's stop and take a breath. I know that was a lot to cover in a short period of time. And let's talk about a Medote review. Now, last week we reviewed Alacrity, which uh, very simply is the opposite of procrastination. And Everyday Holiness asked the question last week, how can we stoke the fire of our enthusiasm? And if you remember the answer, the answer was gratitude. So, how about this week we review the uh, Mito of gratitude. The Hebrew for gratitude, if you remember, is Hakarat HaTov. And this means recognizing the good. 
The good is always already there. It's just that we need to practice seeing the good in every situation. Uh, the ancient proverb says, Who is rich? One who rejoices in his own lot. If you live like this and you begin to want to give thanks for everything that anybody Hashem or anything that comes to you. Um, it is a sign when gratitude is well established and overflowing. It is a sign of a heart that has been made right and whole. Uh, also, gratitude cannot exist with arrogance and selfishness. Uh, we can be, it seems like we, we can even be grateful for inanimate objects. When you get in your car and it starts, you're thankful um, and we in the chapter on everyday holiness, I think we even talked about how uh, Moshe had Aaron turn the uh, water to blood because the water had in his babyhood saved his life, basically. Um, sometimes it can be easier to be grateful to Hashem for what he gives us rather than to one another. Sometimes it's harder to to just say thank you to one another. It's a lot easier to say thank you to Hashem. But we need to be ready to give thanks to one another for every little good that comes our way, even if it's not something really big. The soul trait of gratitude is the key to opening up the heart. Strengthening our midot of gratitude also helps us reduce or eliminate that endless search for more and more stuff. If we are grateful for what we have, then um, we're not necessarily going out and looking for more. You know, think about a, a young person who gets his first car. That car may be a beat up junker, but he's out there polishing it and taking care of it and and so proud of it because he is so grateful that he has a car at all. Um, so he's not out looking for some brand new 2019 model. He's ha he's just happy to have a car. And if we need to get in that mindset. Okay, so what are the obstacles to gratitude? Again, this seems to come up almost every time. First, we are becoming too absorbed in the things of this world and the enjoyment of them rather than on heavenly things. Second, we kind of get used to having good things. Hashem is so good to us. We kind of get used to it and we begin to take it for granted. Another one is, is that we're negatively focused. Uh, we focus more on the bad things or the troubles or the trials that we have rather than on the good things that we have. And Rabbi Ibn Pakuda says, because of this attitude, many of the good things are left unenjoyed and the happiness to be had from them becomes tainted either because we don't recognize the good in it or their value. And we are encouraged to a kind of radical kind of gratitude, realizing that for you and me, even in our troubles, Whatever the all-merciful Hashem does, he does for good. And if you remember the story of Akiva and his rooster and donkey and lamp, he was outside of a city and he had a rooster, a donkey, and a lamp. And uh, it talks about how the uh, something came along and his rooster died, his donkey was attacked, and the lamp blows out. 
And rather than be um, disheartened or ungrateful, um, he's grateful. And the next morning he finds out that the city outside of which he camped was attacked and had the rooster crowed or the donkey brayed or they had seen his lamp, he would have also been attacked. So the thing is, is that sometimes in the middle of our troubles, we can't see the bigger picture. So we need to learn our one of our very favorite phrases, which is, Gamzu letova. Not that we are oblivious to the troubles. We know they're there and they're challenges and we work through them. Maybe we use them to see if we need to repent. But because we realize we can't see the bigger picture and perhaps there are things in this situation that will actually turn out to be a blessing. Gamzu letova. So when we take on the curriculum of reminding ourselves every day to be grateful, we change our whole perception of life. And with that, we change our lives. We can change our lives from bitter and negative to positive and joyful. And it begins in our heart. And it prov- and having that grateful heart then provides us with resources to help us face whatever troubles might be coming along. So let's end today with Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to proclaim your goodness in the morning and your faithfulness in the night. So be grateful. Start a great gratitude journal. Okay, that's our lesson for this week. Was We have started the three weeks of mourning. I encourage you to remember to pray for the city of Saginaw, pray earnestly for the completion of the mikvah, and pray with all urgency for the coming of Mashiach who will rebuild the next temple. Thank you for being here. Uh, Have a great week and uh, continue on with your three weeks of introspection and we will see you again next week.